Good evening. Goodbye Forever, Volume 2 by Nakchang Rinpoche, Chapter 23, Part 1. Pakshi Trullo. The morning passed in pleasant reading and then lunch. Annie Churying was there, along with Geraint Williams and Lydia Evesham. We enjoyed a lively conversation. Geraint and Lydia were also unable to attend the empowerments but said that they hoped they'd be given again in the future when they'd managed to complete their nundros. I've been thinking, Annie Churying mused, about our earlier conversation, about why people are attracted to power and magic. There's something that I meant to mention, but we ran out of time. It's the association of Nazism with occultism. There are a few books and papers I read on the subject when I was at university. There are direct links between Ariosophy and Nazi ideology. From what I've read, many of the Nazi party leaders seem to have enjoined a form of quasi-scientific occultism. Hitler's Reich Chancellery, Goebbels' propaganda ministry, and Himmler's Gestapo espoused occultism as many Nazis believed in its scientific value. Scientific value? gasped Geraint. Exactly, replied Annie Churying. The Nazis were fundamentally unscientific in their ideology. They merely chose whatever supported their world view so it suited them to vaunt a bogus scientific occultism, which they contrasted with popular occultism in order to validate their higher form of occultism. That's really creepy, Lydia exclaimed, her eyes revealing a degree of disquiet. It is, I commented. Somehow this doesn't surprise me. They were anti-Darwin, my German grandfather lost his career as the head of a prestigious school for refusing to teach Nazi propaganda. He said, education concerns reality rather than make-believe. And of course, the Nazis weren't overly pleased with that response. Fortunately, it was early enough in World War II that nothing worse happened to him. So was the occultism there from the start? asked Geraint. Yes, it seems so. The political group that eventually became the Nazi party was founded by individuals of the Thule Society, an esoteric group who believed the mythological origins of the Aryan race to be factual. Several prominent Nazis were either active members of that society including Rudolf Hess. Thule, I required, I inquired. Thule is a mythological northern island. It has other names such as Hyperborea or Atlantis. Thule was supposed to be the origin of the Aryan race. Maybe I've got this wrong, but I thought Aryan referred to Asian peoples. Well, yes, but Hitler had other ideas. So this was some sort of early 20th century version of today's tarot card culture, 
I replied. It's somewhat disturbing that this can be adopted by fascism as easily as by the love and light back to the earth movement. The Nazis also espoused naturism and they had many ideas about food that would sit well with hippie culture. Hitler was a vegetarian. That is quite illuminating in terms of some of the Western Buddhists I've met, the ones who are obsessed with magic. They seem to have a sense of elitism, superiority and exclusiveness that is disturbingly similar to certain aspects of Nazi ideology. That's why I thought I'd mention it, responded Annie Churying with a somewhat worried expression. It was what you told me about Gilbert Harris that made me think of this. It was the occultists Guido von Liszt whose exploration of runes led to the twin sig runes of the SS insignia. The Thule Society believed that the Aryan people were bred by electrical energy from intergalactic deities called Theozoa. They said that the other races were the result of interbreeding between humanity and apes, which left the interbred Aryans bereft of their magical powers. Although the subject matter is different, this all has the feel of Gilbert Harris and others I've met. I commented with a wearied shake of my head. What else do you know about this? asked Garant. Because I knew some people and, well, this worries me. I don't know that much more because it was only a minor part of my studies. However, Himmler had a personal occultist, Karl Willigut, who developed a religion around worshipping the Germanic, Germanic deity Ermin. According to Karl Willigut, German culture dated back over 200,000 years to when the earth had three suns and was populated by giants, dwarfs and other mythological beings. He claimed to be descended from a line of kings from this time and Himmler seems to have taken him at least partially seriously. On the basis of Karl Willigut's prophecy, Himmler chose Wevelsberg Castle as the base for the SS and adopted his design of the runic skull rings that Himmler awarded his favourites amongst his SS troops. Himmler was particularly attracted to paganism as he detested the Jewish origins of Christianity. He believed that after Germany had won the war, the old Germanic gods would be restored. There are a number of strange theories about the Nazis and occultism, but I have no interest in fanciful horror story speculation. That's about all I can remember, apart from Karl Willigut having been diagnosed as schizophrenic. Thank you very much indeed. This gives me much to consider. It seems to me that there's a danger of misinterpretation, deliberate or otherwise, with regard to the wrathful awareness beings and the protectors. 
Vajrayana is regarded as dangerous, but I don't think that I've ever really understood that in this respect. I think that unless a person is genuinely disinterested in power, it's best not to think about any form of wrathful practice. But can't power be valuable? asked Geraint. I looked to Annie Chuying to answer, but she looked back at me to answer. I'm interested to hear how you answer this. Power is certainly valuable. For example, I'm quite strong. I'm strong because I've worked on building sites as a hoddie carrying piles of bricks up ladders. I also have a strong back from prostrations. That means that if you need help lifting something heavy, I can cheerfully help you. If I can help a person, then I'm happy that I have the strength to do it. But otherwise, I'm not overly concerned with being strong. It rarely occurs to me that I'm probably stronger than most people I meet, because that idea has no function for me. I didn't work on building sites to develop muscles. I did that to earn money to take me out to the Himalayas. I didn't engage in prostrations to strengthen my back. I perform this practice as a necessary part of my training. The strength I gained in both cases was entirely adventitious. Accidental, unplanned, unintentional, unintended, unpremeditated, inadvertent, I added in reaction to Geraint's look of bafflement. I'm quite good with language too, I laughed so I can give definitions or help someone who wants to write something. I'm an art student, so I can produce informational material and letterheads for Buddhist centres. I was in a blues band, so I can play blues harp, and maybe sometimes some people still enjoy that. This all could be thought of as power, but if it is, I didn't arrive at it through wanting power. It doesn't make me superior to you or better than you. Maybe, but it makes you much more interesting than me. How can you say that, I laughed, when you have utterly fabulous multicoloured Tibetan felt boots and I do not. You also have a far better head of hair. It's ginger too, whereas mine is merely thin, meagre and mousy. To make matters worse, my hair's already starting to recede. I'll be as bold as a coot before I'm forty. Good point, laughed Geraint with some degree of abandon. Annie Churying laughed too, but rather quietly. I think what you said about wrathful practice is really pertinent. It's the minds of those who are attracted to magic or wrathful practice that make it either immensely valuable or immensely dangerous. Worshipping Odin is another question, of course. Even that, I interjected, depends on the mind of the person. I was a card-carrying Viking as a child and was terribly disappointed when I heard that the religions of the Vikings no longer existed. I was enormously keen on having a horned helmet carrying a sword or axes and sailing the seas in a longship. That had them all in fits of laughter. 
But my interest was more in line with Noggin the Nog than Heinrich Leutpold Himmler or the desire for rape and pillage on the coast of northeastern Britain. Concepts of actual battle never crossed my mind. I didn't wish to die in battle after butchering as many people as possible so that I could feast in Valhalla, the slaughter hall. Feasting after a jolly longship journey in the North Atlantic was my idea of fun. I just loved the imagery and, in the end, it led me to Vajrayana. You're joking, Lydia almost squawked. Alas, no, I replied with mock solemnity. When I found two books on Tibet in the junior school library, I almost whooped. This is a religion the Vikings would have liked, I thought. And how old were you then? asked Lydia. About eight. So, as you can see, my fascination was all in the realm of art and creative imagination. The Vikings were theatre and sartorial exuberance to me when I was young. Likewise, Tibetan costume. Of course, the religious attraction lay in the fact that Vajrayana was a religion that centred on kindness, but had no God as an uncreated creator. I'd been an atheist since the age of five, through the example of the parents of my first girlfriend. They were humanist atheists, extremely kind and open-minded, and I was deeply impressed by them. At that moment, a fellow came up and told me that Akong Rinpoche wished to see me. It seemed evident that it was more or less mandatory, so I apologised to Annie Churying and the others and left the table immediately and followed where the fellow led me. What could this portend? I wondered. Was my presence at Sami Ling causing too much consternation? Was I going to be asked to leave? That seemed quite possible, because various people had decided to dislike me. I was led upstairs to a room. The fellow departed without a word. I knocked on the door with slight trepidation. Akong Rinpoche came to open the door himself, rather than calling for me to come in, as he had done when I first met him. He told me, with a broad smile, that it was good to see me again, and that he was glad I had attended the Vajra Crown Ceremony in London. He'd seen me there. He'd watched me come forward and receive a protection cord. He noticed that I still wore it around my neck. Gyalwa Karmapa, Akong Rinpoche began as soon as I'd taken my seat, asking why Pakshi Trullo and Dorje Bernakchen Wang's not taken. He seemed to have a wry smile playing on his face. I was told I wasn't qualified, I replied, with perhaps also the slightest hint of wryness. No Nundro completing? he chuckled. Yes, Rinpoche. The shorter and longer Dujimte Nandros, the Kandro Tugtig and Tromanakmo Nandros. I was told that I had to have completed the 
chariot for travelling the path to freedom, Nundro, to take the Pakshi Trulowang. I was told that the Nundros I'd completed didn't fit the requirements. Akong Rinpoche nodded, smiled and said, You please hear waiting. Akong Rinpoche was gone for some few minutes. When he returned, he could not disguise the broadest of grins. He was known to be slightly dour and almost never to smile, but obviously something had happened that affected a striking change in his demeanour. He asked me to follow him. We left the room together, moved along the landing. I had some vague sense that I was in a play with an unknown script. It wasn't exactly surreal, but neither was it normal. We arrived at the door to another room. Akong paused for a moment. He tapped once on the door. Then we entered. Or rather, we exited from the fairly normal hallway, almost as if we were stepping out of a spacecraft onto the surface of the moon. On the 20th of July, 1969, Apollo 11, with Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin aboard, landed on the moon. Neil Armstrong stepped onto the lunar surface first, and Buzz Aldrin joined him 19 minutes later. They spent over two hours together outside the spacecraft and collected almost 50 pounds of lunar material to bring back to the Earth. What would I bring back to Earth from this sojourn on the Immaculate Moon? Neil Armstrong's first step on the moon was broadcast worldwide live on television. He said, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. It had been like that when I met Kyabje Dujam Rinpoche for the first time. Although I would have said, one brief quotidian interlude for Dujam Rimshe, one giant eon for Nakpa Chögyam. Be that as it may, I was suddenly aware that I was in the presence of Gyalwa Karmapa. I performed three prostrations. Gyalwa Karmapa indicated that I should be seated on a pile of cushions. I was glad of the height of cushions as my legs have never been good for anything other than climbing hills. Sitting cross-legged was never easy or comfortable for more than a few hours and lotus posture was more or less impossible. Galwa Karmapa commenced with a mock frown and Akong Rinpoche translated. His Holiness saying... I am Akong asking Inji Nakpa on Wang list. Akong no saying. Then asking why Inji Nakpa not Wang's wanting. Akong not knowing, he laughed. Akong saying I don't know, he repeated and laughed again. Akong Rimshe was equally amused. Then telling... You quickly finding, you asking, why Inji Nakpa not Wang's wanting? Gyalwa Karmapa obviously found the whole incident highly amusing. 
too bad, too bad. Dudjum Rinpoche, my Vajra brother. How his Nundro not qualifying? How permission not giving when you are Dudjum Rinpoche's disciple and Dudjum Rinpoche, my Vajra brother? So, what Yidam practising? The Dujum Ter Tromanakmo Rimshe. Galwa Karmapa shook his head in consternation. Oh, yeah, too bad, too bad. Dujum Rimshe, Vajra brother. How Dujum Rimshe is Yidam not qualifying? He laughed. Answering, not necessary. Anyway, sometimes people really too stupid becoming. Yongle Mingyo Doje is Nyingma Nakpa. You also Nyingma Nakpa. No other qualification necessary. Gyalwa Karmapa then went on to tell me about Teton Yongle Mingyo Doje. And as he spoke, I noticed the way he seemed to glow. It was as if he was super saturated with colour to the extent that it spilled out into the room. I wondered if it was merely the effect of the sunlight, but it wasn't particularly bright and the light from the window was nothing out of the ordinary. Even though Nyingma Terma, Yongle Mingyo Doje is Chuying Doje offering, so this is how Lord of Terma becoming. Yongle Mingyo Doje also gave Chuying Doje the Doje Bernakchen protector. At this time, he envisioned the kill core of Karma Pakshi, with Guru Rinpoche above Karma Pakshi as the central Yidam with Pamdrin and other Yidams surrounding him. The Karma Pakshi practice is Lamari Naljor of various stages, explained in accordance with Mahamudra in the Kagyud tradition. But the form of Karma Pakshi Lamari Naljor is explained according to Dzogchen. This is because Yongle Mingyo Doje revealed this practice as a Dzogchen master. Mahamudra and Dzogchen are not different in result. It is only the method that is different. Ultimately, they are the same. Now you must know there is only one Guru Rinpoche, but how many forms does he manifest? Many, I replied, but there are eight famous forms of Padmakara. Can you name them? Yes, Rinpoche. Pema Gyalpo, Pema Jungne, Shakya Senge, Nima Oza, Urgen Soke Doje Chang, Senge Dradog, Loden Chogsre, and Doje Trulo. Yeah, good. You are well knowing. And so each form different name having. Dusum Kempa manifested 16 times and each manifestation different name having. Yet all Karmapas same. Maybe now you. Which aspect of Guru Rinpoche is Karma Pakshi asking? In this respect, Karma Pakshi is Dorje Trullo, because Dorje Trullo's wrath is indivisible from Karma Pakshi. 
There are many tertons and many termas, but the terma of Yongle Mingya Dorje is Karma Pakshi as Dorje Truro. So you must understand that Karma Pakshi, Dorje Truro and Yongle Mingya Dorje are not essentially different. Yongle Mingya Dorje lived during the times of my 10th and 11th incarnations and contributed immensely to the Kagyu. It happened, due to the evil of politics, that the Karma Kagyu was split apart in the region of Utsang. This was because the central and northern provinces of Tibet were fighting with each other. In this troubled time, the terma of Yongle Mingya Dorje was very important for the Kagyu. Its practice strengthened the Kagyu lineages in Kham, enabling practitioners to turn back enemies and bring peace. This is why this terma did not become extinct.